HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that has been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone-ground products for decades. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality. You're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely. You're irreplaceable. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T.com. Welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. I'm your host, Jordan Warner Berry, here with executive producer Michael Harlan Turkell. Twas the night before Christmas when all through the mill, not a baker was stirring, no ovens to fill. The cinders were out in the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas wouldn't burn his dairy air. It's a season of celebration. And no matter what you're celebrating, that usually means baking. Sweet or savory, traditional or cutting edge, more people fire up their ovens during the holiday season than any other time of the year. Is it nostalgia that's driving us? A quaint desire to replicate the recipes and memories of our childhood? Or is it a more deeply rooted need of societal or even religious conforming? And why is this cornucopia of holiday bread so darn sweet? Nathan Mirvold, founder of Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, explains that no matter the reason, our celebratory instincts are universal. Virtually every religion on earth has the concept 
of celebrating with feasts. It's one of the few truly universal human things is we like to eat, and having an excuse to have a party is like a really good thing. So every religion has some set of times that you celebrate. And depending on the religion, it could be you're celebrating God's birthday. It could be you're celebrating God's death day, which sounds weird, but really that's what Easter is about, is celebrating the crucifixion and the resurrection. But you could be doing something to ensure a good harvest. You could be celebrating, oh boy, we had a good harvest. (laughs) We had a good harvest. We're about to have a tough winter, so eat now. What's the line between celebration and sustenance if it's really about bulking up for the winter? Baby, it's cold outside. And so every society has had some level of both celebratory feasts and religious significance to those feasts. If you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, some of the oldest stories in Western civilization, they are forever feasting. The luxury food for almost all parts of the world has historically been meat. If you're in a hunter-gatherer society, you actually have a fair amount of meat, but it's not very predictable. You might go a long ways between having some. As we move to an agricultural society, uh, well, plant-based agriculture allowed us to have much bigger cities and, and so forth, but it meant meat became even more scarce. So, Feasting for meat is something that kings could do, maybe high priests could do, but not everyone could do. So the point of a special breads or sacramental breads was to create a food that was both special but also accessible. There aren't many people that would call communion wafers special from a flavor standpoint, but it's their symbolism that makes them heavenly. These breads hold a deeper meaning beyond simple sustenance, which is a good thing considering the sacrament only supplies a bite. So it was a luxury food, but an affordable luxury food. Now, if you look at these foods around the world, most of them wind up having luxury ingredients in them. Luxury ingredients like eggs, like oil or butter. You would only get a chance to eat something like that relatively infrequently. And the biggest luxury of all sweet. Now, we think of sweet as being constantly accessible because modern science and agriculture has made sugar always accessible and damn near free. But to most societies, for most of human civilization, sweet things were very rare. You could get honey, but honey was difficult to get in any predictable way. People would find it in the woods, but until people learned how to keep bees and really be beekeepers, which took quite a while. Uh, Honey was in short supply. Fruit could be sweet, but only at the height of the season, and that only really occurred once a year. And that was about it. So a lot of special occasion breads were sweet. They either had a uh, something sweet that was mixed in, honey or later sugar, or they had fruit in them, or dried fruits, or candied fruits. Humans have an evolutionary desire for sweetness, and now it's almost too easy to satisfy a sweet tooth. 
More than a few of us have foul memories of fruitcake or the dubious delight of gumdrop bread. Both have us humming spinal taps Christmas with the devil. The sugar plums are rancid and the stockings are in flames. To talk about the phenomenon of holiday baking, good, bad, and illicit, I sat down with Brian Hart Hoffman, editor-in-chief of Bake From Scratch magazine and author of The Bread Collection. Let's just take Stolen, for example, with a history that has been documented or speculated about for 500 plus years with roots in Dresden, Germany. And 584 years ago, I believe, there was like a butter edict. There was a papal dispensation that re-allowed the Baker's Guild to use butter during Advent. It was a forbidden ingredient during a season of fasting. And so the lack of butter use was affecting the stolen and the tradition of making it and baking it and having this community-wide craving for it. And getting the butter dispensation allowed the Baker's Guild to start baking with butter in their stolen. But it came with a catch. A portion of their sales had to be donated to the church, I believe. (laughs) And from that, the funds built a number of the churches that we see today in that area of Germany. So if you visit Dresden and you see the beautiful architecture and the churches and the cathedrals and all of these beautiful icons that we love to photograph and see now, you can know that butter was a part of how they were built. Thankfully, only part. They'd all have been stolen if it weren't for the butter dispensation, or at least melted by now. And so when you start learning the story behind something and then you want to make it in the kitchen, it's just the full circle engagement with an item that people love. But for me, Stolen does not have like family roots in adulthood and now baking in my own kitchen. I love that Stolen is the perfect holiday make ahead. Stolen actually taste better and is one of those that gets better with time baked items. We advise someone to bake it two weeks before they'd like to serve it. And the deep coating of powdered sugar on the top of it helps to keep it fresh and the moisture you want from it. But it also allows the brandy soaked fruits to fully infused into the bread flavoring. And so the experience is something that in hectic holiday time, I think it's a perfect mid-December baking day on a weekend, tightly wrap the finished product and put it away in a cool, dark place for a couple of weeks. And then right during that busy week of Christmas, bring it to a party or take it to a family gathering. And you haven't been in the kitchen that day like laboring over this. And there's actually an excitement and a euphoria of opening, you know, the the sealed bread and slicing into it and enjoying it. It's like opening a present. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> One that you know what it is. You don't have to shake the box. <laughs> well, and Stolen has a really unique shape or lack thereof. And the folding of the dough in shaping the final pre-bake dough is to mimic what... Jesus would look like in swaddling clothes, apparently. You know, I'm sure this is one of those, like, not folk tales, but something that was like, oh, doesn't this rough shape resemble the swaddling clothes? And I think that for Christmas and holiday time is something that brings a significance to people. So every baked good has a story. 
Most of these stories are handed down through families and cultures, which must be how we ended up with swaddle bread. I asked Brian, what does he like about Stolen? And what do I not what like What do you not it? love about it? <laughs> so there's a story here for sure. Including Stolen in the book was a must for me because I do make it at holiday time. In development, we included some rose water in the marzipan. And the rose water that we used in our test kitchen was very mild in its flavor profile. I'm going to bake the stolen for holiday, and I can't wait to get it in my kitchen at home. So I make the marzipan that we included in the recipe, and I include the rose water like we called for. And when I cut into the stolen, I, I hated it. <laughs> I full-on hated it uh, because the rose water I had used was a very strong and potent rose water. And that flavor is something that you can't have overpower something that already has complex flavors. And I felt like I was eating a funeral. It's all going to work just fine based on uh, someone's flavor preferences. But mine will not have rose water in it this year. I can promise you that. <laughs> Other than the marzipan, what makes a great stolen? So I think the moisture and the use of the depth of flavors you get from the fruit and the the brandy and the marzipan. It's like that and, 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 and situation where there's just so much that is flavorful and delicious. It is so addicting. Like it's one of those things that I actually need to slice it have a piece, and quickly give the rest to someone else or else I'm going to eat every single bite of it. <laughs> it's a perfect gift, even if you're just giving it to get it out of your kitchen. Why do we bother with these holiday breads if we have to save ourselves from them? So a year ago, we did a bit of research into why people bake more at the holiday time and what motivates them to do that. Um, and the first and foremost thing we discovered was that 75% of the population that bakes will do so at a more complex level during the holiday time. Wow. They will take on things they've never made before. They will push themselves to new limits because I think first there's this season of giving. And I think we see it in the retail environment, obviously. Mm -hmm. We see it in the religious environment and we see it in just a spirit of people that feel inspired to give and someone who loves to bake or cook, I think, feels that they are giving uh, love through the items they make. And baking is that ultimate show-off. Not show-off. That sounds very, like, uh, overly, like, self-absorbed. But baking is where you showcase your love for someone by doing something that they have the biggest wow reaction to. And so I think it is just a huge push for that. And a lot of people take their final vacation time or their final time off. They spend a lot of time at home with family. And I think that brings people into the kitchen naturally. And there's something a lot more impressive about a, a stolen than a scone on, on that level of when you're sharing it with your family, but even bringing it to a party as a housewarming gift or... And the story you get to tell behind it. You know, people frequently ask me, you know, how did you do this? What goes into this? Or, you know, is it significant to me? Like, is there a story here? Have you made this every year of your life? And most of the time, my answer is no, because I think being in my role as the editor of a baking brand, 
I don't want to be a repeat recipe baker. But I think there's the opposite side of that. I think there are people that make something at the holiday time every single year because it was handed down in family tradition, or they started it to be a tradition for their children to remember, or they just became the most well-known baker of a certain item and it's the most requested every year. You know, I think everyone has a reason for what they're doing, but it is always done with joy and a smile, I think. And I mean, baking in general, I think brings a level of happiness. You don't go into a bakery and see people buying things with a frown on their face. Whether it's making eggnog French toast at home or going to the bakery for lassikatzer, Swedish saffron buns, these breads are not only ornamental, they're often overloaded with sugar and sentiment. Francisco Magoya, head chef at Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, looks into why it's less about sourdough and more about enriching ourselves. One of the things to, to realize is that a lot of holiday breads share common traits. There isn't a holiday sourdough bread, right? I mean, it's delicious, but it's not a fun treat to have. You know, you don't give a kid a slice of sourdough and hot chocolate, right? What you do is you make a slightly sweeter bread, a softer, a fattier bread, if you will. So most can trace their lineage to brioche. And think of brioche like a... Our brioche is 50% butter in relation to the amount of flour. So if there's a... 1,000 grams of flour, there's 500 grams of butter in the dough. So it's a very enriched dough. There's sugar in there as well. There's eggs. So a lot of these recipes also, they utilize, they have fat, sugar, eggs. So eggs are, they also have fat, but they also add flavor. They add, you know, some structure to the dough. Sugar adds the obvious, which is sweetness, but it also gives you a more tender crumb. Most holiday breads aren't crusty. They're soft on the outside. And that's because of all the fat and sugar that is, that is in the dough. Why not swap out those milk and cookies for Santa with a nice brioche tête? Maybe even add a frosted red stocking cap, unless Santa's more interested in eating seasonally. Because they're baked in what you would typically think as an off-season for produce, they will typically use dried fruit or candied fruit. I mean, if you think of panettone, which is probably one of my favorite breads in the book, But I also don't do it very often because it's a two- or three-day process. It's a big waiting game. But it utilizes dried fruit, uses nuts, it utilizes chocolate. You don't typically add anything that is seasonal, per se, because nothing's in season. I love stolen, you know, the marzipan in there and then the dried fruits. I mean, these are all things that are available from preserving fruits when they were in season. How do you preserve them? You either add a ton of sugar to them or you dry them in the sun, or, you know, there's different things that you do so that then you can use them throughout the year. Any of these breads, if you add, like, fresh fruit to them, I've never thought of it as a good idea because if you add a blueberry to something or blackberry or raspberry, it just it makes the crumbs soggy. They kind of explode inside the dough. It's just it's not a good idea. Practice makes perfect, but how do you perfect a bread that you only bake annually? The reason also why people do these once a year is because <laughs> some of them are very hard to do. And you forget how hard they are. And then the next year, you're like doing it again and you're in the middle of it. And you're like, now I remember why I only do it once a year. Some requires special cups, right? So special vessels that they're baked in. There's this like Colomba de Pasqua, which is like an Easter bread shaped like a dove. You need paper cup pans for that. I mean, it's something that you have to really want to make. Uh, Whereas, 
you know, a baguette. You don't, you just need an oven. You don't need all of this other stuff. And usually they take a long time. If you think about challah, people eat it every Saturday typically, but there's, there's also like a New Year's challah. And then there are versions that are more Christian that will use, like in Easter, they'll bake eggs in it, which is weird if you ask me, only because the egg is already cooked when they put it on. And so now we're going to cook it further. And it, it doesn't have to make sense, I suppose. But when you think about things uh, a little bit more, they, they, some of them do seem really kooky. But it's a treat. It's a reward. It, when you, it's something you have for dessert after your special holiday dinner. Again, whether it be Easter or Passover or Hanukkah, it's a celebration of the season and it's a treat, right? Three words for you. Treat yourself. You don't have to blow your budget on velvet slippies like Tom and Donna on Parks and Rec. A perfectly baked holiday bread can be just as decadent. Hala, treat yourself. Stolen, treat yourself. Pandoro, treat yourself. While you start planning your own holiday bread version of self-care, we'll take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that's been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone-ground products for decades. It's prime baking season, and that goes for breads as well as cookies and other holiday treats. No matter who you're baking for or what you're making, Bob's Red Mill has a flour that's up to the task. Going to a cookie swap? Use the gluten-free one-to-one baking flour, and everyone will be able to enjoy them. The key to making crispy latkes? A sprinkle of Bob's Red Mill potato starch. Whether you're cooking for an office party or party of one on a paleo, gluten-free, or vegan diet, if you want the highest quality flours, grains, and meals, period, Bob's Red Mill is your go-to. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality. You're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. Visit bobsredmill.com and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely. You're irreplaceable. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by La Crusade. La Crusade was the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality and design, and they have been a favorite for generations through the meals it creates and the style it expresses. It's the season of giving, and whether that means a beautifully wrapped present or a hot breakfast on a holiday morning, La Crusade makes it special. I still remember how excited I was to pick up and try to shake the very heavy box holding my first La Crusade Dutch oven. It was right after I finished college, and it just felt so adult. I'm still celebrating with my La Crusade today, but now it holds my Boxing Day cinnamon buns. Original heirloom cookware, backed by a lifetime warranty, only from La Crusade. Visit lacrusade.com backslash bread to explore their entire collection of cast iron cookware and search their recipe page to get started. Enjoy special offers and free shipping with the code BREAD. Welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. The holidays we've baked for so far only happen once a year. For some, the baking or buying of special bread is a weekly Shabbos ritual. For others, like the Zeros of Zeros Family Bakery, it's for all generations on any occasion. MHT talks to Mike Zero, the fourth generation of age-old Hala braiders. 
And how many Zeros are there at the bakery now? There are four Zeros at the bakery. Can you explain why I asked that question? We asked that question because there are a lot of Zeros. Um, <laughs> and only four of us that do work in the bakery today. So there are a couple schlumps that just sit around eating challah? I, yeah, I think so. I think that is what they do. Our bakery was established in the late 1920s by my great-grandfather, Joseph. My grandfather and his brother, Will, took over, or Uncle Bill, Uncle Willie, depends uh, who you ask. They ran the bakery into the 70s and 80s, and they transitioned from a local Bronx bakery or local Bronx bakeries. We had many bakeries throughout the Bronx, um, down into Manhattan in the late 70s. And at that point, my father and his brother, my Uncle Joe, they took over the business, and they've been running the business up until about three years ago. And then they decided they'd been banging their heads against the wall long enough, and they would let, let the next generation take a try. Now, throughout all these generations, all these years, what has been the number one bestseller for the bakery? Bagels is the number one bestseller, but challah has always been a top five item. I mean, I find that fascinating about challah because, of course, you must see a bump during Shabbos or prior to Shabbos because it is so ingrained in a specific day of the week uh, for Jewish tradition. But when is it that you ramp up production and why? Challah does ramp up toward the end of the week. We sell a, a portion on Monday, a portion Tuesday. And then by Friday, we're selling 50 to 60% more than we sell during the rest of the week. And so for us here in the bakery, the way we produce, we kind of stay a day ahead of that. I mean, that couldn't just be because of the Jews of New York. Why is Hala such a big seller on that day? You know, Michael, I, I think it is the Jews of New York. I'll, I'll tell you, during Passover, we sell a lot with Hala. And it's, it's also become a part of the commuter's routine. And at the end of the week, the, the hollows are in the stores. They're packed up high. And people run in and they grab one and they, they head out to their train. I mean, that's so nice to be part of so many different families' tradition. Was it ever a tradition of your family or was it just a, a business idea for a bakery? Definitely a part of our family's tradition. Dad brought hollow home every Friday. We eat a little bit on Friday night. But I have very um, vivid memories of Saturday morning, cutting giant hunks of challah, toasting them, and you'd get this kind of eggy toasting bread smell in the house and slathering it in butter, and we'd eat whole challahs. It was unbelievable. I don't bring a challah home as often as I should. Uh, I kind of forget. My, my wife says that you know, her and my kids are like the cobbler's kids with holes in their shoes. But when I do bring one home, we do make an event of it. We light the candles. The kids only eat the top. They kind of like rip the top off and leave this the doughy mess underneath behind. And that's you know, what we do in my house. Let's talk about the qualities of a good challah, because you've said things like eggy and doughy. What should a challah taste like? What should it feel like? How should it rip? A challah should be very soft to the touch, very pillow-like to the touch. Our challah, the Zaro's challah, tends to be very airy. Well, a lot of other challahs I find are much more dense. I prefer ours, the lighter, airy version. The inside is soft, has a, a wonderful taste of egg, a slight yellow color to it, and a soft, you know, beautiful crust that tears easily, beautiful shine to it. Uh, that's kind of how I expect a challah. And I mean, it's beautiful, too, being braided, but why go through all those extra steps when you could just make a round bread? I have no idea. <laughs> We make the round breads for the new year to, you know, the circle of life and everything comes full circle. I don't know why we braid them, but there's uh, there's something historic about it and something traditional about it that I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. I feel like there's also something very soothing about it. Very rote. I don't know if your bakers would 
say the same thing with the however many of thousands of loaves they have to make a day. But the repetitive nature of braiding that challah, it feels like a triumph when it actually comes out. Oh, it, it absolutely is. I, I remember when I learned to braid challah about 10 years ago, and it, it was a very frustrating process. I couldn't seem to get the hang of it. And a gentleman who works, works for us at the time named Gustavo taught me how to braid the challah. It finally clicked. And it is extremely satisfying. Rolling a rye bread or, or, or a boule is, is obviously satisfying. You're making this great, great bread that people are going to eat. But there's something about the, the braid of the challah and the beauty of it, the symmetry of it, that's just, to me, something really special. So when you pass down the story of how you learn to make challah to your children, you have to cite Gustavo as your teacher. Not your mother. Not, not, not your... my dad or my grandfather <laughs> or my mother, Gustavo. That's, yes. that's fascinating. Why is that? Why did it not? Why is it a generational gap? No, um, my dad can, as he'd say, he can flex a challah, but he just never taught me. We didn't spend that kind of time here in the bakery. Gen- generally, when I was a kid and I'd go to work with my dad, I would go to the stores and he would leave me in one of the retail stores for the day and I would fold boxes or, you know, pack out a showcase, something that couldn't, you know, couldn't do any harm. And I really didn't spend a ton of time in the bakery. And it wasn't until I started working for the business 10 years ago and spending most of my time here that I that I learned how to do it. And that's the interesting parody between home baking and bakery baking. Is, is this something that you ever make at home? No, we've never made challah at home. Although I, I was gifted a, a bag mix of a gluten-free challah that I will take home in the near future to make. But no, we, we don't. I have, I have friends who do it at home from time to time. It's just not something we as Zaro's ever had to do. We ate Zaro's challah. <laughs> how many do you make a day or how many do you make for Shabbos each week? Every week we make about 3,000 challah. And that number gets, the number kind of is, I'd say, uh, 1,000 of it toward the end of the week and 2,000 over the beginning of the week. Well, every Friday, every Shabbat, uh, we eat challah. Um, and for us, it's a part of our tradition. It's part of, I think, most Jewish homes' tradition. On uh, Rosh Hashanah, we eat round challah to celebrate the New Year. And making a round challah is quite a different process. It's it's also really interesting and very satisfying. You make this perfect conical-shaped bread, and it's just fun, very different, but fun. Well, challah for me also symbolizes the best French toast you'll ever have because of its eggy nature. It's kind of, you know, emulsified like a brioche, but light and airy and flaky enough that it doesn't feel like you're eating a pound of bread you're soaking in the, your French toast substance. What else is it good for? Challah is great for tuna melts. Challah is great with butter on it. Challah is great with cream cheese on it. Great egg sandwiches. Oh, God, I mean, countless uses. I think we've made pizza bagels, not pizza bagels, I guess pizza hollows before um, for the kids. I don't know how great they were, but, you know, we've, we've tried just about everything with it. And it's, it's kind of, as you said, Michael, it's, it's, it's soft enough and, and light enough that it's always enjoyable to eat, but it's firm enough that you could do something with it. It's a great bread. So why not bake holiday breads year-round? What if we dispelled this sacramental sense that surrounds them? took away the ceremony, and made stolen on Sundays for football, panettone for President's Day. Nathan Mirvold, co-author of Modernist Bread, points out that at any given time and in any given place, the main ingredients are much the same. Throughout Europe, a lot of the Easter breads are very similar, and they're similar between fairly different religions. The Catholic fancy breads and the Greek Orthodox fancy breads for sacramental things and Jewish challah are all very closely related. And they're all a egg or other oil-enriched bread with sweet things either in it or stuck to it. 
And that's been, you know, sort of a big thing all the time. Now, different areas would have a different tradition. For some holidays, they'd have a heavily spiced bread. So gingerbread is actually a carryover to medieval times when a lot of food was very heavily spiced. Remember that Christopher Columbus was looking for a route to the spice islands and the spice trade, not trying to find North America or North and South America. That just wasn't in the cards. For a long period of time, the ultimate luxury good were spices. And they were expensive because they came from what is today India or Indonesia, and they had a very circuitous route by the time they'd get to Europe. Does spicing a bread do a disservice by disguising the wheat and the grain, making it more about the palpable flavor profile? In almost every part of the world, as you go towards the regions which are physically hotter, the food's hotter. In southern Europe, they have a lot more spicy food than they do in Germany or in Scandinavia. And if you look at recipes from across Europe from the 1400s, they're all heavily, heavily spiced. So the earliest English cookbook is a book called The Form of Curry. It's from the mid-1400s. And almost every meat recipe has large amounts of cinnamon. We don't think of cinnamon as a meat spice today, but it was then. Well, the two holdovers from that are mincemeat and gingerbread. I remember as a kid, some relative of ours brought traditional Scandinavian cardamom cookies to some holiday event. And I was very perplexed as a child because, like, I looked it up and cardamom doesn't grow in Scandinavia. How the hell can you have a traditional cardamom cookie from Sweden? What's up with this? It makes no sense. It bothered me endlessly. A holiday bread that makes more sense both in its ingredients and in its festive shape, is pandoro. Pandoro is a traditional Italian Christmas bread, golden in color and shaped as an eight-point star. To find out more, we reached out to Gustiamo, an importer of high-quality real Italian foods. They carry the pandoro made by award-winning pastry chef Luigi Biasetto. Lucky for us, Luigi was in town, so we sat down with him and the Gustiamo team at Gustiamo's warehouse in the Bronx. Pandoro is a Christmas bread traditionally in Verona, near Padua. Verona is famous as the city of lovers of Romeo and Juliet. This bread was born in Verona. It is a very particular, complicated bread. So much so that, today, very few artisans, bakers and pastry chefs, are able to make it. Beyond its inherent romance, the name is significant, too. Pandoro means pane dorato, or golden bread. When you see Pandoro, you see that the name is both appropriate and fortunate. It is a bread rich with egg yolks, even more so than panettone. Basically, the difference between the two is, in Pandoro, a sweet levan, in panettone, a sourdough. Also, the sensation of fruit. In panettone, there is fruit. Grapes, candied fruit, etc. In Pandoro, There's only butter and a lot of vanilla and many more eggs. Pandoro and panettone get lumped together, but it's not just the lack of fruit that makes them different. 
When Luigi makes Pandoro, it takes him five doughs and several days. The succession of doughs, leaven, add ingredients, leaven again, add more ingredients, and so on, makes it a long and complex process that few want to tackle. The payoff is a bread with that familiar base of ingredients, flour, butter, eggs, sugar, but an aroma that makes it a real star. We've neglected an important moment. Smell. Smell. When you go to confession, you have the censor. When a sommelier opens the bottle, he smells the cork. When we open a bag of Pandoro, we have to smell the perfume. In resting the Pandoro, the perfume changes. It's sweeter than it was before. When I smell, I smell the veil of sugar that has absorbed the rich aromas. They are more mature. The sense of smell is more closely linked with memory than any of our other senses. Opening a Pandoro and experiencing the aroma, the familiar comfort of vanilla can transport us to the Alps or back to the celebrations of our childhood. Like other Christmas breads, when cut through the center, Pandoro is in the shape of a star. And it is eaten in Verona on the day of St. Lucia, the 12th of December, through to the 6th or 7th of January, the Epiphany. A pastry always signifies a moment of celebration, the birthday celebration, a religious holiday or wedding, celebrating pleasant moments with another person. Pastries are celebration. Tradition drives us to our annual Pandoro or Panettone. But taking Luigi's words as inspiration, pastries are celebration. Should we have these breads whenever we're feeling festive? Francisco Magoya, co-author of Modernist Bread, thinks it's okay to eat Panettone more than once a year. A good friend of mine, Baker, his name is Roy Schwarzapple. He's based out of California. He makes probably the best Panettone I've ever had. I could eat an entire panettone by myself. What he's trying to do is he's trying to make basically what happened with pies, because remember, pies are something that you just have for certain special occasions or seasons. Now pie is all the time, everywhere. He wants to have people get used to having panettone year-round, not just during the holidays. And I get it. It's not temperature contingent to have a panettone, and you can add dry versions of whatever fruit is in season during that time and and create a a wonderful product. So this is not to say that he's taking significance away from panettone. People are still going to eat panettone during the, you know, Christian Christmas holidays. But it's, I think it's okay to eat panettone in June, (laughs) you know, if you want to. I could eat stolen any time. I don't have to wait for Christmas to get uh, stolen uh, just because it's so delicious. So it seems like there's a pie shop in every corner in Brooklyn. So why not panettone? It's all just flour and butter, right? But people attribute those sorts of special meanings or traditions, if you will, to them. And there's something to be said for waiting a year to eat a stolen, right? It's a pr- like when you get it, it's a super nice thing. You know, you haven't had it in a while and it's delicious. And I mean, some people don't like it. I like it very much. I like fruitcake too, but that's an, my unpopular opinion. And it's well made. It's fantastic. But it, I, I get it when you get it with those weird green cherries. I've never seen a green cherry, but they come in fruitcake. And so that, that I can see. But when it's done with really well candied fruit and a good recipe, and, you know, it lasts forever. So there's nothing wrong with that. It's delicious. It tastes great. Ben and Jerry's, when they're not busy making Cherry Garcia or fish food, 
uses the motto, if it's not fun, why do it? In holiday breads, as in ice cream, we think if it's not delicious, why make it? It's a fine line to follow. There's that, why would you make a panettone at home and not just buy one? I would say that most commercial panettones are awful. They're made months before in some factory in Italy. Super tight, super dry. It has a bad rap, right? You know, like Roy's panettones are 50 bucks, but they're worth every penny. I'd pay 100 bucks for them. Where people, they, the context that they might have of a panettone is probably not a good one. And so, like, what do you mean this guy is, is making panettones? I mean, why, why would I want to eat a panettone in May if it's terrible in December? Why is it going to be better in May? We have to learn that there's some people that do a great job with them. I know how to make panettone. During Christmas season, I would rather buy one from Roy than make it in my house because I know I'm not set up for it. I'd make a stolen at home just because it's a lot easier. But there's certain breads that even I at home would just not even try. If you can get a good resource for them, I mean, why not? I mean, I used to own a chocolate shop. I didn't make my own chocolate from scratch because that's a whole separate headache. Get a good brand of chocolate and you can temper it and make wonderful pieces, right? So... That is a perspective that that I would take a look at. So. It's all a decision about how much to take on. Is honoring the tradition about making it from scratch, slowly remembering the intricate steps year after year, and looking at the recipe a thousand times? Or is it more about the nostalgia that the flavors evoke, no matter who conjures them, taking us back like Proust's Madeleine? And suddenly the memory returns. Nostalgia from memories that you've had, uh, you know, childhood memories. It's something that really motivates a lot of us to do these things. And it also can be frustrating for, for many who don't know how to do them properly, right? They're costlier, right? If you ruin a baguette, the most expensive thing in the equation was your time. If you ruin a panettone, it's a lot of money and butter. And good candied fruit is not cheap. And you need to have this special rig to cool the panettone down, otherwise it collapses onto itself because it's so delicate. So it will just implode. So you have to hang it upside down. So you have to have all this mise en place for that. You know, panettone utilizes, we were talking about pre-ferments earlier, it utilizes a pre-ferment that you have to feed every three hours, has to reach a particular pH, and then you make the first dough, and you have to wait eight to ten hours, and then you make the second dough. So it's like, if it doesn't turn out, you're going to get really upset. All that effort. Maybe by doing it only once a year, we forget how much work it is. As the air starts to chill, the snow starts to fall, we tackle these intricate bakes with a fresh sense of optimism and excitement that only time can bring. Opening the recipe book is like unwrapping a present, and you remember that you'd rather re-gift it once all the hard work is done. These holiday breads and all the significance, celebration, tradition, and nostalgia they hold, make us slow down and savor the process. Take the time to reflect on your year of baking, the everyday loaves that sustain us, the grains, the farmers who grow them, their microbial magic. Follow the new butter edict to use butter and eggs and sugar and swaddle a stolen or braid a challah into the circle of life. Happy baking to all and to all a good rise. This has been episode 15 of Modernist Breadcrumbs, Deck the Hollas. In the next and final episode of the season, we'll paint a picture of bread and art.
Special thanks this week to Brian Hart Hoffman, Luigi Biasetto, Gustiamo, and Michael Zaro. Modernist Breadcrumbs is produced by executive producer Michael Harlan Turkel and me, Jordan Werner Berry, in collaboration with Modernist Cuisine. Our audio engineer is Noam Osband, and our research assistant and translator for this episode is Alex Greenberg. Our theme music is composed by Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lowe's. Hear more on Instagram at Carol Cleveland Sings. Modernist Breadcrumbs is a production of Heritage Radio Network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>